Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Today's guest is Dr. Dean Ornish, who's considered by many to be the father of lifestyle medicine, which actually is the fastest growing trend in medicine today. He is a seven-time New York Times best-selling author, and his most recent book is being released in paperback called Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Diseases. The Ornish Diet has been rated the number one best heart-healthy diet for the 11th year since 2011. We're going to discuss not only diet, but also lifestyle and how to decrease stress and anxiety in your life while being self-compassionate and compassionate towards others. So I hope you enjoy and thanks for being with me today. Well, Dean, it's great to see you again. It's been a few years since we uh, had our last uh, conversation at Seek Care, which I enjoyed very much. You know, sort of to begin, I, I think everyone recognizes you as sort of, I don't know if the father's the right word, of uh, sort of this concept of lifestyle medicine. You've had, what, six New York Times bestsellers? Seven, actually, no. <laughs> Seven. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but now I know the uh, Undo It book is coming out January 4th, and congratulations on the paperback version of that uh, New York Times bestseller. But sort of before we go into all of that, as you know, there's obviously uh, a correlation I think all of us agree upon in terms of sort of mind, body, spirit, and how these connect, if you will, to have a meaningful life or to make us happy. And I recall from our prior conversation, I think we both wholeheartedly agreed upon that. And you had actually shared some experiences you had with, I guess, uh, I don't know if uh, it's your guru Maybe you could tell us about that and sort of what happened to create that relationship or give you insights. Well, first of all, it's so great to see you again, even if only virtually. I've missed our conversations, and I admire so much what you've been doing to bring together science and love and spirituality and meaning, which really are what everything is really about. And it's, I think it's the basis of healing. It's the basis of, uh, of joy. You know, if it's meaningful, it's sustainable. And so um, I first got interested in doing this, what I call the conspiracy of love, if you will, uh, when I was 19 years old and a freshman in college at uh, Rice University in Houston. Well, actually, it's just starting my second year. And I really wanted to be a doctor. You have to do well in organic chemistry, at least at the time, to, to get into medical school. It's one of those courses that has absolutely nothing to, to do anything with anything you'll need as a doctor. I'm sure you had to go through this as well. Oh, yes, um, yes. But uh, it's the most important course. And my course was taught by this guy named uh, Conrad Richter, I still remember, who I'm sure escaped uh, Nazi Germany and stopped in Houston on his way to, to Argentina <laughs> to be my organic chemistry professor. And uh, he said, look to your right and look to your left on the first day of class, and one of you won't be here. Now, this is a school where, at the time, half the student body graduated first or second in their high school classes. And he said, we're going to put you all under a bell curve and rate you A to F. And uh, he taught the class purely by rote memory, which has never been my strongest suit, with no conceptual basis at all. And plus, in one of God's other little jokes, I... My, my college roommate at the time was one of the four people in the country who had scored a perfect score on his SATs uh, and had a photographic memory, never had to study, did well. And so I began to worry that I wasn't going to be able to fulfill my dream of being a doctor. And the more I worried, the harder it became to study. And the harder it became to study, the more I worried. And I got to a point where I literally couldn't sleep for a week straight. And if you showed me something on a headline on a newspaper, I couldn't tell you, you know, a couple minutes later what it said. I was just completely bereft. And uh, I was just so agitated and just, I, I was able to take all the meaning out of life. You know, we were talking about meaning earlier. You know, it wasn't just your average college existential angst. It was like, you know, who cares? So what? Nothing matters. Big deal. Why bother? Like, and, and I also had what, in retrospect, was a, a spiritual vision that was more than I could handle at the time, that nothing can bring lasting happiness. And the combination of feeling like I was never going to mount anything because I was stupid, that somehow I just managed to fool the admissions committee into thinking that I wasn't stupid and kind of a classic imposter syndrome. And now that I was with a bunch of really smart kids, it was just a matter of time before they realized what a big mistake they'd made in letting me in. 
So the combination of feeling like I was really stupid and would never amount to anything, but even if I did, it wouldn't matter anyway. It was like, well, gosh, you know, what's the point? You know, why don't I just kill myself? You know, dead people look like they're peaceful and I wasn't, I could barely sit still. And so I decided I was gonna, I was living in an apartment jungle in Houston, like it was completely devoid of soul, uh, right across from the Astrodome. And uh, they had this giant oil derrick in front of this apartment complex that I lived in called Smith Square. Uh, that was where the Houston Oilers at the time, uh, the football team, played uh, practice. And so I thought I'd just jump off the tower and that'll be it and then I'll be peaceful and that'll, then I won't have to worry. And then I thought, well, you know, my parents will probably be upset if I did that. And so why don't I just get really drunk and I'll run my car into the side of a bridge and then everybody will think I just got drunk and they'll say, you know, too bad, but they won't really know I would really, what really happened. And so I, I made plans to do that. And then I ran myself so ragged that I literally couldn't get out of bed one day. I had such a bad case of infectious mononucleosis that I literally couldn't, couldn't move. And my parents got wind that I was not doing well. They came down from Dallas to see what a wreck I was. Uh, and I went home with them to Dallas. And the plan was to get strong enough to kill myself, as crazy as that sounds. Meanwhile, this was in 19, January of 1973. My older sister, who had been a child of the 60s, had found uh, a lot of help from a, an ecumenical spiritual teacher at the time named Swami Satchidananda, who Peter Max, the artist, had brought over in 1966. And he opened Woodstock, and that was, you know, he became well-known for doing that. He started the Integral Yoga Institutes. And so there's an old saying, you know, Jim, that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I don't know about you, but that was certainly true for me. And so in walks this, you know, central castings idea of what a Swami should be, you know, long saffron robes, a long white beard, the whole bit. And he came into our living room and he gave a little satsang, a little lecture, and he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, but I was ready to do myself in and he's glowing, like, what am I missing here? And he went on to say what probably sounds like a, you know, a new age cliche, but turned my life around, which is that nothing can bring us lasting health and happiness. That's the bad news. The good news is we already have it. And for the most part, you know, there are exceptions to that. But by and large, we are already happy and healthy until we disturb it. And what may be the ultimate irony in life is that not being mindful of that, we think, gosh, I really feel lonely and isolated and depressed and stressed out. I must be lacking something. If only I had more of whatever that is, usually, you know, more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, whatever. If only I had more blank, then I'd be good, then I'd feel good, then I wouldn't you know, be so stressed, then everyone would love me and then everything would be good. Now, what he taught me was that once you set up that view of the world, however it turns out, you're generally gonna suffer because until you get it, you're stressed, you know, wow, I hope I get it, you know, because, and the stakes are so high because now it's not just winning or losing, it's like being a winner or a loser because winners people love and losers they don't wanna be around. So the stakes, the stakes go up, the stresses go up. So if I don't, until you get it, you're stressed. If someone else gets it, then you're really stressed and it reinforces that this idea that we live in this zero sum game world that the more you get, the less there is for me and you only go around once and you better get it while you can and all of that. If you never get it, you feel stressed. And even if you get it, that's the part that's so interesting because now it's like, ah, now I'm good. You know, I feel good, everything's great. But it doesn't last. It's usually invariably followed by, at some point by either now what, it's never enough. You know, I'm sure people say, gosh, if I just made X amount of dollars a year, that would do it. And then you do it and you think, well, you know, if I just made one, you know, it's a patient once said, you know, I can't even enjoy the view from the mountain I've climbed. I'm already looking over at the next one. Or if it's not now what, it's so what, big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. And so I remember a patient once said, the letdown that comes from accomplishing a goal is so great because it didn't really bring me lasting, you know, peace and happiness that I always make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my, well, this didn't do it, but maybe that will. And so the cycle continues. And so what I learned from the Swami, who, um, you know, I, at that time he said, look, if you change your diet, you know, I was eating a typical Texas diet of, you know, chilies and, and cheeseburgers and chalupas and meat several times a day and meditate. And I could barely, you know, sit still, much less meditate and do some exercise and have more love in your heart. Um, that'll transform your life. And he said that these, these techniques of meditation and yoga and so on don't bring you a sense of peace and well-being, that you have it already. What they do is at least temporarily help us to stop disturbing what's already there. Now that may sound like, you know, parsing words and semantics and all of that, but it turned my whole life around because the implications are actually quite profound because 
if it's really out there, then everybody who has whatever it is that I think I need to be happy and healthy has power over me, right? If you don't get to do this, I won't do that. And, 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 and then all these things we talked about earlier, until you get at your stress, if you don't get at your stress, if someone else gets at your early stress and all that. But if it's in me, not to blame myself, but it empowers myself because I can do something about that. And so the question shifts not from how can I get what I think I need to be happy and healthy, but rather how can I stop disturbing what's already there? And that's a really empowering realization. And so um, I thought, okay, well, let me give, I'll move killing myself down to plan B. Let me give this weird stuff a try. Uh, the Swami used to like to make puns. You know, people would say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo, you know, <laughs> which is where the title of my book, Undo, is kind of an homage to that. Oh, interesting. Again, that, you know, and also my favorite key on the keyboard has always been the undo button. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we had something like that in our real life? And so what I learned is that the best way I can describe it is, is that when I'm feeling distressed, to stop asking, why can't I get what I think I need to be happy? And to say, why am I allowing this to disturb my owner sense of peace and well-being? And the paradox is when I thought I had to get all these things and get into medical school to be happy and healthy, I literally couldn't you know, function at all. I literally couldn't read a headline, as I mentioned earlier, and tell you what it said. But the more inwardly defined I became, and it was a, it's a continual process, it's not binary. It's like, oh, I began to get glimpses of what it felt like at the end of a meditation to, um, to feel a sense of peace and to realize and to connect the dots that the, the meditation didn't bring me that. It's not like Valium in other form, but rather at least for the moment, I wasn't disturbing what was there. Then I, the paradox is that I could then go back out. I went back to school, transferred to the University of Texas in Austin, graduated first in my class, gave the baccalaureate. I say that not to brag, but to just say, I experienced both ends of that spectrum. Total nihilism and despair and going to the darkest of dark places and feeling like I didn't really deserve to breathe air that someone else might breathe, you know, to, you know, succeeding really wildly because the paradox was the more inwardly defined I was, the less anxiety I had, the more I could function at a really high level. So later when I went to medical school and I was learning how to do bypass surgery with Michael DeBakey, the heart surgeon who basically invented bypass surgery, who was really a tyrant, I have to say, you know, he would, he was really old school. I mean, like he would stick your fingers with a needle if you didn't move them fast enough out of the operating field, uh -huh. that kind of thing. And he'd say things like, yes. like, what year are you, son? I said, I'm just starting my third year. He goes, damn, it's going to be so hard to, much harder to bust you out of here now that you've got this far, you know, with these weird ideas you have. And by the way, just to digress for a moment, he, um, he called me about four years ago at the age of 99. I hadn't heard from him in decades. And he said, hey, Dean, this is Mike DeBakey. And I, I recognize he had a very um, distinctive Louisiana accent. And I recognized it immediately, even though it had been uh, many years since I'd spoken to him. And I said, yeah, so what do I owe this honor? He said, well, you know those weird ideas I used to give you such a hard time about when you were my medical student? I said, oh yeah, I remember very well. He goes, that's what's kept me alive all these years. And I just wanted you to know at the age of 95, I'll probably be dead soon. I just wanted to let you know that my wife got interested in, in these same ideas. And I just wanted to let you know that it really made a difference in my life. So like, if you live long enough, you just never know. I think that's right. I mean, I, I uh, uh, you know, I think just to emphasize another point is the realization, as you were pointing out, that many of us don't appreciate our self-agency. And we attribute, and in some ways, I, I hate to say it, it's like the prosperity gospel. You know, I want this, I want that. It's always looking for what you want versus happiness is not found from all of these things. It's found from actually in some ways, being self-compassionate and accepting yourself as you are, not how you wish you could be. And also, I think goals are wonderful, but there should be no attachment to the completion of the goal. Exactly. And the other thing that happens when you meditate deeply, as you know, and you've talked about so eloquently, is that you get to a non-dual place, that on one level we're separate, you know, you're you and I'm me, on another level we're part of everything that connects us. In fact, study after study have shown that people who are lonely and isolated and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from virtually all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that powerful an impact. I think the real pandemic is not just COVID and heart disease and diabetes, it's loneliness and isolation and, and despair, you know, in part because of the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people that sense of love and connection and community. You know, 50 years ago, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a two or three generations of people that lived together in a neighborhood. They had a job that felt secure. They'd been at for, you know, 10 years or more. They had a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a club or something they went to regularly. 
And many people don't have any of those things. And one of the studies that I quote in the new book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are, because it's not a real, it's not an authentic intimacy. It's like everyone has their best self out there. Like here, here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower and here I am with my you know, successful kids or whatever. But when you grow up in a neighborhood with two or three generations of people, they really know you and they don't just know your Facebook profile or your bio sketch. They know where you messed up. They know your dark side. They know when I was suicide depressed or whatever. And you know that they know and they know that you know that they know and they're still there for you. And there's just something really primal about, you know, I see you like in James Cameron's uh, avatar, you know, that I see all of you, not just your your stuff. So when we have the support groups in our studies, they're not just helping people stay on the diet. It's really creating that safe place where people can feel that sense of authenticity that like, I may look like I'm doing well, but I'm really bankrupt, you know, and instead of someone rejecting them or giving them glib advice or whatever, they just going to be there and fully present with them is even the word healing, as you know, comes from the root to make whole and yoga is from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite union, to bring together. These are really old ideas that we're rediscovering. No, I think that's right. It is interesting. In some ways you're talking about the blue zones, right? You have these areas where people live a long period of time. But as you point out, there's no question that diet is hugely important. But if you look at the uh, contribution, I think it's social connection and deep relationships that by far and away contributes to that as well. In fact, that's something we can talk about a little bit later. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... Uh... Oh, no, no. And Dan Buettner is a good friend who started the Blue Zones, and uh, he, he's right about that. It kind of goes into the unifying theory, which the new book is about. But before I get into that, I just wanted to finish the thought about the sense of, of, of uh, separateness. Um, and that is that, you know, on one level, we are separate. You know, you're you and me, and you're you and I'm me. But on another level, we're all a part of something larger that connects us all. And part of the value of meditation is that it takes you to that non, non-dual place, which is, you know, we talked about how social relationships can be healing, but also the sense of the direct experience that we're already interconnected, I think it would really be powerfully healing and uh, can help us. I mean, I've had, you know, in doing these studies, I've asked people like, why do you smoke and overeat and drink too much, work too hard and abuse opioids and play so many video games? These behaviors seem so so, uh, maladaptive. And they say, they're not maladaptive. You don't get it. They're very adaptive. They help us deal with our pain, our loneliness, our depression. I've had patients, you probably have too, who've said, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or I've had people say food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or opioids numb the pain or too much alcohol or other drugs numb the pain or video games distract me from my pain or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of distracting yourself from pain. And so I've learned over time that providing people information uh, about their health is important, but it's not usually sufficient. I mean, if it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like I'd say, hey, Jim, I want you to quit smoking. Did you know it's bad for you? You know, like everybody knows it's bad for you. It's on every pack of cigarettes. And it's not enough to focus on the behavior, but what underlies that behavior. And just like when I was in college, when I was so distressed. And if we can help people quiet down their mind and body and to use the experience of suffering, of being diagnosed with heart disease or any illness as a doorway or as a catalyst for transforming their lives, because, you know, change is hard. But if you're hurting enough, like I was, for me, it was depression. For someone else, it might be uh, diabetes or heart attack or whatever. Then the idea of change becomes more appealing. It's like, wow, this is weird stuff. But OK, it's been proven in randomized trials and leading peer reviewed journals. So I can reverse my heart disease in many cases. Let me give this weird stuff a try. It gives people permission in a way to try things like meditation or eating a plant based diet that they might not do otherwise. And then they because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, they start to feel so much better so quickly. You know, in often case, the chest pain or the angina goes away in the first two or three weeks. And for someone who, you know, can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work or do any things that make life worth doing without getting severe chest pain or angina, and within a few weeks, they're essentially able to do all those things, then they, it reframes the reason for changing from fear of dying or fear of a heart attack or stroke or something really bad, which is really not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which really are. It's like what I gain is so much more than what I give up. And quickly, yeah, I like eating cheeseburgers, but not that much because I like being able to do all these other things even better. That's ultimately what makes it sustainable. I learned when I was in college, I could take all the meaning out of life, as we talked about. 
But I also learned that I could imbue my life with meaning. And one way to do that is by serving other people and being compassionate and and choosing not to eat certain foods even. Can, is that deprivation? Well, it can be, but it can also be something that really imbues our life with meaning. You know, all spiritual traditions, almost all of them and religions usually have some kind of dietary guidelines. And they're often even in different from one another. You know, you can eat this, but not that, or certain days of the week or times of day or months or whatever. But whatever the intrinsic benefit of eating or not eating certain foods is, just the act of choosing not to eat certain foods imbues them with meaning. And also, if it's meaningful, that makes it sustainable. You know, it's interesting. I had a conversation uh, the other day. I don't, do you know David Destino? No, I don't. I'm really interested in learning about him. Yeah, he's a social psychologist, if I recall correctly. But he's written a book. I think it's called... Uh, what God knows, or but anyway, it's a it looks at religions and why these rituals, why these diets, and all of these things have significant meaning, and uh, and he's actually studied this, and like you were just describing, this connectedness, doing acts together, these certain rituals bind us together, and uh, to further what you were saying is, you know. When you grow up with people who've seen you at your worst and your best, seen you as a kid naked, and they accept you regardless, the very nature of that is completely calming because you don't have to fear. I, I think, uh, and I'd like your thoughts on this, you know, so many people in modern society are terrified of being judged by other people, which the very nature of that creates anxiety and stress. Well, it's true. And um, since we've been talking about the Swami, let me share with you one of the most powerful lessons in compassion that I learned, you know, because really what you're talking about is having compassion for yourself and having compassion for others. Uh, it's something you've talked about so eloquently on so many of your shows. Um, is it okay if I can digress just for a moment? Sure. No, absolutely. <laughs> it's a little We're weird. We're here for you. <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird story, but I, it, it was life-changing for me. So when I was a uh, first year in college, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who had done the work on death and dying, you know, the five stages of dying, you know, anger and denial and whatever, and then acceptance, uh, gave a, was going to give a workshop in Houston where I was in medical school. And so uh, I decided to go because I knew I wouldn't learn much about that in my medical school. So, and I knew I'd have to be dealing with it. So I went there expecting to have this four-day didactic course on how to deal with dying people. But instead, she decided that... Um, when you're working with dying people, that it brings up whatever insecurities or anger or fears that you have. And so her approach was to take this kind of cathartic primal scream, uh, you know, act out all your demons uh, so that you could then let go of them. And so for the first several days, first three days, I watched all these, you know, nurses and ministers and psychologists kind of go up to this phone book that she had there and have this rubber radiator hose and kind of pound the hell out of this phone book you know, acting out all their demons. You know, it was it was really interesting theater. Like, you know, like suddenly you had this mild-mannered person turning into, you know, Charles Manson, Helter Skelter, you know, right in front of you. As you could just feel the, the the negativity. And I thought, well, you know, I've already gone through my own demons. I'm pretty familiar with them. I don't I don't need to do this. But on the last morning of it, one of the things that I decided when I decided not to kill myself a few years before was that if I'm going to choose to live, I want to live fully. I, when I get to the end of my life, I don't want to regret what I, I'd rather regret what I did do than rather what I didn't do. Because if I did something and it turned out to be stupid, there's a lot of wisdom that comes from making mistakes and learning from them. But if you don't do it, you just wonder, you know. And the people that I worked with, I'm sure you have too, tend to regret more what they did than what they didn't do. Because if you if it doesn't work out, there's, you know, there's a powerful lesson that you learn from that. And I knew that I, I needed to find out for myself what was real and what wasn't. So that would really involve leading kind of a messy life and doing a lot of dumb things. But it, there's a lot of wisdom that's come from doing that. And then you just really know from your own experience, not like, well, maybe that's true and maybe not. Anyway, so the little voice said, you know, this is something that you need to do. Um, and by the way, the other thing that happens when you meditate is that you begin to hear your own inner voice, that still small voice within that speaks very clearly but very quietly and gets drowned out by the chatter of everyday life. I've learned to really trust that voice. I'm sure you have as well. In fact, every study I've done, people thought was impossible at the time. And it came from hearing that voice and listening to it and then kind of reverse engineering a study to see if, if it were true or not. But anyway... So that little voice said, you need to do this. I said, I don't need to do this. And he said, yeah, no, you really do. And so I thought, okay, let me give this a try. I don't know these people. I'll never see them again. I'll never know unless I try it. Let me try this weird thing. So I went up there and started to hit this phone book with the radiator hose, and I couldn't get into it at all. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was very intuitive, said, look, imagine you're hitting someone, not just you're hitting this phone book. I said, well, why would I do that? I don't hate anybody, you know, like, you know, a little halo around my head. <laughs> and she said, well, I, just try it. You know, so I thought, okay, well, I thought about 
you know, the, my ex-girlfriend and anybody that I thought had done me wrong. And just, you know, it always was the same where I'd start to hit them with this radiator hose and they'd be shocked and then they would fight back and I'd overcome them and move on to the next person. And after about 20 minutes of this, my hands had blisters, I was drenched in sweat. And what I realized is that it didn't really, it wasn't a catharsis for me. It only intensified the darkness, the negative feelings, the anger, the hatred, and so on. And by the way, chronic anger is the one emotion that's been consistently linked with heart disease. It's really toxic. But it didn't free me from it. It just, it, it just, it just uh, fed it, really. You know, it's like that old, it's like, a, which, which dog do you want to, which wolf do you want to feed, you know? So, um, but I thought, well, that's interesting. So at least, at least I, I learned that, you know, that's good to know. So I said, I'm done. She said, I don't think you're done. I said, what do you mean you don't think I'm done? Who could I possibly have left out? I've gone through my, you know, this, this, this. She said, no, there's somebody you've left out who's important to you. And I thought, and then a little, the Swami's face came in front of me. Uh, and he's never been a guru in the sense of, you know, the traditional guru disciple, but more as a wise teacher. And so he stood in front of me and it was, I can only describe it as realer than real, but it was um, like something out of Star Wars with Obi-Wan Kenobi where, you know, I, where he was just standing there with his arms outstretched and let me hit him. You know, I started to hit him across the, the legs and he just let me hit him. And that just at the time made me even matter. So I know this is going to sound terrible, but I, I looked up, I thought, because I remember he had um, given a lecture a few months earlier in Chicago when I was there about the man who found God through pure hatred of God which we don't really have much in Western tradition about that. But the idea was that the purity of the feeling will take you to where you want to go, even if it's negative. So I thought, okay, let's see if that's true. So I started hitting him across the legs and he didn't, he just let me hit him. And then I looked up to hit him across the face, as horrible as that sounds. I thought if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it hundred percent. And I could see that he had these tears coming down his face and they weren't tears like I was physically hurting him with his rubber hose. They were, I can only describe them as, as tears of, of pure compassion, you know, and I could hear him say without, a, without any sense of being patronizing, uh, you poor ignorant boy, you just don't know any better. And, you know, even telling it now, I've, I, I, it makes me want to cry. Um, and in that moment, I thought, wow, this goes along with what you were saying earlier about you grow up, you know, with people and they see your nakedness and your darkness and they're still there for you. It's like, here I am showing my, my most dark side to someone and getting only light in return, light of compassion. And then in that moment, it was like, oh, the light drives out the darkness, you know? And if someone else can have that kind of compassion on my darkness, maybe I can have that kind of compassion on my own darkness. And then in that same moment, if I can have that kind of compassion on my own darkness, maybe I can have it on someone else's, other people's darkness too. And that really was a transformative moment for me. I still think back on it. Um, you know, the Swami's tears of, of uh, compassion. It's kind of like, you know, it's a different religion than I was brought up in. And it's, it's like, you know, when Jesus was nailed up on the cross, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, you know, all religious, spiritual stories have their version of this. But for me, it was deeply personal. And it really freed me from whatever residual self-doubt and, and self-loathing and, that I had, you know, from being so suicidally depressed when I was in college and enable me to take risks and to do things that I would never have been able to do um, had I not had those experiences. No, I think that's interesting. You know, the Dalai Lama told me a story one time where um, there was a, uh, a Tibetan captive who had been in a Tibetan prison. And when he was let out, he was with the Dalai Lama and he started crying. He was saying the torch was so much that he almost lost compassion for his tormentors. Wow. And, and, and that's what was bothering him uh, the most. But, you know, it is this sort of idea that, uh, um, you know, you don't know what you're doing and, and you have to see yourself. And, you know, I think when you go through a situation like that, it reinforces this uh, sort of concept of oneness and interconnectedness and interdependence. And sadly, the nature of the ways in which we hurt ourselves and how we don't realize it and having somebody understand that, even though what you're doing is horrible and bad, but still says it's okay, you know, I, I can be with you and sense uh, this, and it's okay. I, I think that's very powerful. Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, when Nelson Mandela was let out of prison after 16 years and had his long walk to freedom, he said, do you hate your jailers? He said, well, they took away the best years of my life, but if I hate them, then I'm still in prison in my heart. And that's why I love the work that I do, because... You know, again, change is hard, but 
for me, it's part of what I call the conspiracy of love, you know, that when someone is suffering, there's an opportunity for real transformation that goes beyond just the physical healing. I remember one of our patients when uh, he was about to have his, his second angiogram, who was one of our studies showing we could reverse heart disease for the first time. And they said, Conrad, are you anxious about what your tests will show? He said, well, I got into the study because I wanted to make sure my arteries were more, more open, but I'm, I'm not as concerned about that as I have been because I'm more open, you know? And of course, his arteries were more, were more open as well. But when someone's hurting, there's a, if you can meet them when they're really in pain, uh, and there's an opportunity to say, well, here's how you can transform your life. And I can't tell you how many people I'm sure have told you the same thing, that having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, the first time I heard that, I thought, what are you nuts? And they'd say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes that have made my life so much more joyful and meaningful that I never would have done that otherwise. And so that, that unifying theory, which is that, you know, I was trained, like you were, to view heart disease and type 2 diabetes and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's disease as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. But they really all come together around the fact that they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, and telomeres, and gene expression, and angiogenesis, and immune function, and so on. And each of those, in turn, are directly influenced by uh, what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have, or to reduce it to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. And you know, the, in, in the 44 years I've been doing clinical research, it, it was the same lifestyle intervention, a whole foods plant-based diet, low in fat and sugar, moderate exercise, both strength training and resistance, uh, meditation, other yoga-based stress management techniques, and love and support. Uh, the same intervention that could stop or reverse the progression of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, early stage prostate cancer. Uh, we found that we did a study with Craig Venter that over 500 genes were changed in just three months, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes. With, uh, we did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn, who did, got the Nobel for discovering uh, telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate cellular aging. We found that we could actually lengthen telomeres, and in a sense, when we published in the Lancet, the Lancet editors called it reversing aging at a cellular level. Uh, now we're in the middle of the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes can stop or reverse the progression of early stage Alzheimer's disease. And so the Undo It book is really about why can these same behaviors affect so many, beneficially affect so many different outcomes and so quickly. It also helps explain why you'll often find what are called uh, comorbidities. The same patient will have diabetes and prostate cancer and heart disease and you know high cholesterol and high blood pressure and be overweight and so on or whole countries you know are like that until they start to like in Japan or China 50 years ago until they start to eat like us and live like us and now all too they often are like, us. like us <laughs> yes exactly and so and so now that Medicare is covering my program uh, and most of the insurance companies are. And just a few months ago, they agreed to cover it for reversing heart disease when it's done virtually. So now we're working with ShareCare to, to not just train hospitals and clinics, but now anyone who lives anywhere in the country over the next month or two, even in rural areas that don't live anywhere near a hospital or a clinic, can, if you go to Ornish.com, our website, can learn how to have this beamed into your home and have Medicare pay for it, which is really awesome. And uh, I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 40 years ago. In other words, back then, it was thought that heart disease could only get worse. And the best you could do would be to slow down the rate at which you got worse. And that was about as much as you could show. What we found is that, you know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure. It takes a lot to reverse a chronic disease. It's, it's not just enough to make some changes. It takes really big changes and a lot of things at the same time. But when we did that, we found we could first reverse heart disease and all these other conditions. And I'm hoping that we may be able to show that with Alzheimer's as well, because the same biological mechanisms, you know, what's good for your brain is good for your heart and vice versa. And so if anyone's out there listening to this, we're still recruiting the last few patients. Uh, just go to Ornish.com. There's information on it's all done at no cost to you or your uh, caregiver. Let me ask you a question about that, though. You know, if you look back and I hate to say more primitive societies because, frankly, I think they're more evolved than we are. We're, you know, you had these sort of close connections, these deep relationships. You ate a non-processed, uh, if you will, healthy diet. Is there a correlation, though, between uh, at that time rates of Alzheimer's versus today? And I, I don't know that literature. Yeah, well, it's been shown that less intensive interventions, that people who... Uh, 
like in the China study, they had lower rates of heart disease, diabetes, and Alzheimer's as well um, until they start to eat like us and live like us, and then they start to get those same conditions as well. Uh, I think you know there are a number of studies like the uh, what's called the FINGER study, which is an acronym for a study that was done in Finland, and the MIND study that show less intensive diet and lifestyle interventions slow the rate of progression into dementia much as 44 years ago when I started doing studies, less intensive lifestyle interventions slowed the rate at which your coronary arteries got clogged. We showed more intensive ones could got, instead of getting more and more clogged, it just, you know, less slowly, more slowly, but still getting more and more clogged, we found we could actually reverse them. They got less, they got, they, the blood flow had improved in the heart in just three weeks, three and a half weeks. Within a year, even severely clogged arteries became measurably less clogged. And we found after five years, even more, even less clogging than there was, more improvement than there was after one year. And I'm hoping that the same will be true for Alzheimer's as well, that we already know that less intensive interventions slow the rate at which you get worse. Maybe a more intensive intervention, you can actually get better. And what's, on, what's different about Alzheimer's is that there are no drugs that can even stop it from getting worse. They just get, slow it down a bit. In fact, one drug got approved a few months ago, a lot of controversy. It was the first drug in 20 years, you know, aducanumab, that uh, you know as a neurologist more than I, that uh, you know, it slows it down a little bit. It's fifty-six thousand dollars a dose, and thirty people get brain hemorrhages and brain edema. Uh, you know, fifty uh, percent of the increase in Medicare Part B premiums are going to be for this one drug. But it just shows you how desperate people are. So if, and it's still an if, but if we can show we can stop or reverse the progression of Alzheimer's, and I'm confident that we may, then that'll really be game-changing, and we can you know give millions of people new hope and new choices. And if we can reverse it, then it'll probably take less intensive interventions to prevent it. And my mom died of Alzheimer's, and I have one of the ApoE4 genes for it. So yeah. I have a personal interest in it. Yeah, well, you know, it is interesting how, you know, it's having such an impact. And, of course, pharmaceutical companies are rushing to come up with something. On that note, again, I don't think there's any question that, as you were discussing, anger, holding grudges, carrying these feelings— is so powerful that it horribly negatively affects your body and causes inflammation, which I think probably is at the core of, of many, many diseases. In fact, I, I think you would probably agree that if you followed a diet like you're describing, you would probably get rid of 80% of uh, medical conditions for which you see physicians for. And it's interesting because we are a system of disease doctors, not wellness doctors, right? And I think that's part of the problem. But how do you think the pharmaceutical industry views this? Because obviously, if people aren't sick, they're not spending dollars on caring for or treating their illness. Well, it's true. And that's been part of the issue I've had. I mean, also, when you're trying to do a study that's never been done before, it's hard to get funding initially because people think like, why should we waste our money? We know it's impossible. And without the funding, you can't show it works. And if they don't think it's going to work, they don't fund it. So I've just taken this kind of crazy idea, like if we're doing good work, somehow the money will come and it always has. But you talk about anger. There was a study that was done. They looked at 148 million tweets, you know, language patterns reflecting, you know, anger and negative social relationships. And that predicted heart disease mortality better than, you know, 10 factors, including even smoking and diabetes, hypertension, obesity, things like that. So these things really are very powerful and they make an important difference. There was also a study that came out recently that looked at caregivers of um, people who were, had COVID-19. You know, they were taking, they were exposed to COVID-19 every day in six countries. Uh, and they found that those eating a, a whole foods plant-based diet were 73% less likely to develop moderate to severe COVID than those eating a tr traditional American diet. Those that, eat a, that ate a uh, pescatarian diet were 59%, but those that were eating a, you know, an Atkins, paleo, keto, high animal protein diet were 400% more likely to get it. And I think that's particularly worth mentioning as we deal with the Omicron variant, because now even if you're fully vaccinated even with boosters, I mean, if you have two shots, you're like, 48% protected. If you have the booster as well, it may be 78%. So people are looking for ways of how can I increase my, my, my resistance to COVID beyond you know, wearing masks, which are of course are important, and social distancing and uh, vaccinations. You know, One study that was done by um, Sheldon Cohen, I don't know how he got this through the Human Studies Committee that was in JAMA, they dripped rhinovirus in one study and a different kind of coronavirus in another into uh, volunteers' noses, and 100% of them got infected with the virus, but not everybody got sick. And they found that those that had six or more 
contacts with other people, a phone call or a visit from a friend or a Zoom call, compared to those that had two or, or fewer over a two-week period, were 4.2 times more likely to develop the signs and symptoms of being sick than those that that didn't have that, uh, those social contacts, even though they were all infected. So we can't always avoid getting infected, but how our body interacts with that, you know, we're finding as part of this unifying theory that affects COVID as well, that the love and support we have, people who exercise have lower risk of getting COVID, and people who eat a healthy diet have much lower risk of getting COVID, and people who meditate and, and are less stressed are much less likely to get it as well. So just one more reason to make these lifestyle changes. Well, that brings up an interesting topic, too, because, uh, as you well know, in Western societies, if you will, we have an epidemic of stress, anxiety, uh, depression. And as we, if you will, push our beliefs in terms of food choices to other countries, they become like us, sadly, as you pointed out. But what I was going to say is then this idea of in terms of eating, are there any, and I hate to say fast food, but corporate entities that are actually pushing a positive diet, if you will, in the food industry. Because, you know, in modern society, people are so rushed and they want to get stuff done or you have two parents working or they're trying to provide for their children. Or is there an easy way to get access to this food that is affordable? As you know, in low-income areas, typically the giant food sellers won't go. uh, So they have these small markets that sell uh, convenient uh, processed foods. Any thoughts on that? Or do you think that uh, Americans or Western thought would be simply, well, you know, I'm just going to get the quickest, fastest thing that uh, feeds what I need? Yeah, really good question. I, um, you know, a lot of these food deserts, that's all you find actually are fast food restaurants, you know, McDonald's and others. And so back in 1999, I worked with the CEO of McDonald's to try to get them to put salads on the menu. I thought if, if all you have is a food desert, in a food desert is a McDonald's, at least they could get some healthy food there. And they did that. But <laughs> because the, the, the junk food is subsidized, not only is it not taxed, it's, not, it's actually subsidized. Uh, and the healthy foods were not. The salads were priced at like five ninety five, and the the burger was ninety nine cents. So if you're on a fixed income, you get, ironically, more calories for your buck by eating junk food, which doesn't is not only subsidized but doesn't really price in the cost of society. But the good news is, to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And I think more and more people are realizing that what a difference you know diet and lifestyle makes, and particularly a plant based diet. It costs less to eat a plant based diet. It's essentially a third world diet. This is the way people ate before they started it you know, eat more meat and, and, and processed foods and things that ultimately cost more. Uh, you can eat a, a you know, a expensive plant-based diet, but you don't need to. It's basically, if you join a food co-op, you can eat less this way. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, Lee Lipsenthal and I trained the St. Vincent de Paul homeless shelter here in San Francisco. Figured if homeless people could do it, anybody could. Over 30,000 homeless people went through this program, you know, and, and uh, so if they can do it, anybody can do it. And so I learned that these Choices are really important, but as people become more aware that when you eat healthfully, it's not about preventing something bad from happening years down the road. It'll certainly help you live longer, but you're telling people, someone like if you told me when I was 19 I was going to live longer when I'm feeling anxious and depressed, I'd say, you don't get it. I'm just trying to get through the day, which so many people are today. And so what, what I'm learning and what I've found is that because these underlying biological mechanisms we've been talking about are so dynamic, you can get better quickly, you can get worse quickly. Even a single meal that's uh, helpful uh, makes you feel better. And you start to feel so much better so quickly and it comes out of your own experience. Like when I do this, I feel good. When I eat that, I don't feel so good. So let me eat more of this and less of that. Then it takes it out of the whole diet wars and diet debates. It's like, oh, I get it from my, I think it was Jonas Salk who said, I don't have faith, I have experience, you know. Uh, There's a wonderful movie called The Game Changers that James Cameron and Luis Ajoyo said. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's now the number one most downloaded documentary in, in history. 100 million downloads on iTunes alone. It shows how elite athletes raised their game and became mixed martial artists, national champion, and the Tennessee Titans became Super Bowl champions for the first time when they went on a healthy plant-based diet. And there's this one great scene with these three guys, athletes in their mid-20s. And guys get erections when they sleep at night. It's a normal function. And so they fed them a single meat-based meal 
and they, they put this device on that measured the frequency and hardness of erections they got when they slept. And they, then the next day they fed them a single plant-based meal. I think it was a Beyond Meat meal or something. And they did the same thing. And they found that all three guys had three to 500% more frequent erections and 10 to 15% harder erections after a single plant-based meal than after a meat-based meal. Apparently the film crew went on a plant-based diet after shooting this scene. <laughs> but it just shows you how dynamic these are. And like, oh yeah, I mean like 40% of guys in their 40s have erectile dysfunction, 50% of guys in their 50s and so on. That's why drugs like Viagra are so uh, lucrative. And, and you know, but it's not just your sexual organs, your brain gets more blood, you think more clearly, you have so much neurogenesis, new brain growth, your brain can get measurably bigger in just a few weeks. You know, your heart gets more blood, so your chest pain goes away and so on. And so when people understand how powerful these lifestyle changes can be, not just in preventing something bad, but improving the quality of your life right here and right now, that's ultimately what makes it sustainable. I think another, uh, you should comment also on the fact that climate change related to diet, and maybe you could just uh, go over that because I know a lot of people would be interested. Yeah, well, um, you know, that's why James Cameron, who you know did Avatar and Terminator and all those great films, did the Game Changers film, was because he's an explorer as well as a filmmaker, and he learned that more global warming is caused by, uh, by eating livestock than all forms of transportation combined. So he went on a vegan diet, and then as a side effect, he's had so much energy, he's now in New Zealand making avatars two, three, and four at the same time in his mid-60s. But also, it takes 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. You know, there's a, no one need go hungry. There's, I was on the board of the San Francisco Food Bank, and, you know, one out of five people, kids in the Bay Area, goes to bed hungry every night. That's, that's just not acceptable. You know, there's enough resources to feed everyone if more people ate that way. Uh, the deforestation in the Amazon is largely due to clear cutting for uh, cattle grazing. Uh, the same is true for, you know, the fact that 11 billion animals get, you know, have these horrible lives and they get killed that don't need to be. My my son is a is an avid music is a great musician and he's 21 now. And a couple of years ago, when we were going to outdoor concerts at the Greek Theater in Berkeley, they had this band called Wolfpack, which is an indie band. My uh, son really liked them. So uh, the front man is a vegan and, and uh, he heard I was there. So we went backstage and he said, look, in the middle of my concerts, I usually spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about why I'm on a plant-based diet and I often cite your work. So since you're here, why don't you do that? I said, what? <laughs> you want me to go out in the middle of your concert and talk about why people should eat a plant-based diet? He goes, yeah. So I did. And so like for 15 minutes, I was cool to my son. That's about <laughs> how long it lasted. But anyway, but I didn't talk about heart attacks and strokes to a group of 15,000 screaming kids in their 20s. You know, they, they, they can't relate to that. So I talked about what can I do as one person to make a difference with it's so easy to over, feel overwhelmed. What can I do as one person about global warming and feeding the hungry and the Amazon and, you know, all these sentient beings, you know, suffering needlessly. Well, it turns out something as primal as what you put in your mouth every day can make a difference, you know. Just have a meatless Monday. You don't have to be a vegan, but just to the degree you do that, you're making a difference in the lives of other people and the planet itself. And when you can imbue those choices with meaning, then it really makes it much more sustainable. You know, it's interesting because I was in a monastery where they trained monks, of course, and at this particular one, everyone was a vegan. And so I spent 10 days there and but the food was just mush, if you will. <laughs> and it had I mean, it wasn't seasoned. I mean, it was like a bowl of yellowish mush. And you're sitting there going. And then I went to a restaurant in the UK called Pharmacy, which is a vegan restaurant. Oh, I know Pharmacy. That's in London. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, one of the woman who does that is uh, part of uh, Dodi. Uh, what's her last name? Uh, Faya uh, Dodi's family. Dodi Fayette. She's wonderful. She has a wonderful book out as well. We really love her. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm doing a podcast with her. So. <laughs> oh, well, please give her my love when you talk to her. Oh, yeah. But her food is delicious. I'm sure that changed your whole thinking. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you try something and you're like, wow. And, and you know, it, most people, I think, and I think that's part of the problem, is they, it, it takes a little effort or, or to learn how to cook a appealing vegetarian diet. And I think, I hate to say that's been sort of one of my challenges sometimes, because I really like excellent vegetarian food, but uh, it can be hard to... Uh... Well, yeah, I never really answered your question before about that. I, you know, I've been approached by food companies for decades to help develop a line of foods that fit our guidelines, but maybe now might be the time to do that, because especially now that we're working with Medicare and other companies to do virtual versions of our program, if we can just send them the food 
and say, just eat this food for the next few weeks with share care. Um, you'll feel so much better. Then you want to learn how to cook and shop and do those other things. But it just makes it kind of so easy to get started and make that transition. And then you start to feel so much better. Then you know from your own experience that this is something that's really making a difference. No, I think actually, I think that would be wonderful because I, I think in some ways people need a little push sometimes. And if you give them something and you go, wow, this is nutritious, it tastes good, it's readily available, and, you know, that may stimulate them to, uh, I'm talking about myself here. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be the, we'll send you the food first. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll be the test. Uh, let's see. Uh, so the book is Undo It. The paperback version's coming out. On uh, January the 4th. And, uh, you know, again, I'm more passionate about this now after 44 years than, than ever. Because I've seen what a powerful difference these simple changes can make. You know, I think our unique contribution has been using these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove what a powerful these difference these simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can do. And so my wife, Anne, and I wrote this book to get it out there to show how simple it is to make these changes and what a profound difference it can make in your health and well-being, not just in terms of living longer, but in feeling better. Well, and I think that's uh, really the key. I, I think the other uh, important thing, and if you can remember, could you repeat it? There were four things, but uh, one was not being angry. And uh, I think you listed four. Can you remember those? <laughs> yeah, the first quote in the book is one of my favorite. It's from uh, Albert Einstein, who said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. So I tried to take all this complexity that I've learned over the decades and reduce it to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. Eat well is a whole foods, plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar. To the degree you can move in that direction, there's a corresponding benefit. Move more. If you like it, you'll do it. Find some kind of exercise you like. Uh, it has a bit of aerobic and some strength training. Stress less. Find some kind of spiritual or secular uh, way of meditating that, that appeals to you, that you can use in breathing techniques, simple things. These are all in the book. And love more. You know, Spend more time with your friends and families. And in real authentic relationships where you can truly, you know, we can only be intimate to the degree we can be vulnerable and we can only be vulnerable to the degree we can feel safe. And so when you're really with people that you feel committed to and that love you and you can really be your authentic self, spend time with those people. It's, it's really healing in, in every sense of the word. Well, I think the corollary to that is that uh, stay away from people who aren't that because, you exactly. know, if you... Uh, <laughs> Hang out with people who are always hypercritical or negative. It has a tendency to bring you down. And I think the other point is forgive more. And yeah. uh, uh, because it's you part know, of the love more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, well, listen, it's so great to see you again. Hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to get together in person, maybe to share a meal. And uh, I love that. yes, and take care of yourself. I look forward to seeing you on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. Is it January 9th that week? It is. And uh, with my wife, Anne, who's been my partner and co-author of this book for uh, 24 years. So um, to me, awareness is the first step in healing. And Jim, thank you so much for helping to raise awareness. I'm really grateful. And I look forward to the next time we can be together in person. Sounds good, my friend. Well, listen, take care and we'll see each other in the future. I know that. Thank you. Me too. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.